Changing Sound, a podcast reflecting on theatre music, sound design, sonic practices and experiences. Welcome. My name is David Rösner and in today's episode you will hear my conversation with Professor Millie Taylor from the University of Amsterdam about her groundbreaking book from 2018 entitled Theatre Music and Sound at the RSC, that is the Royal Shakespeare Company, Macbeth to Matilda. Enjoy this episode. Great, uh, Millie. So thank you very much for taking time to speak to me about your book, which I think is, of course, of of great importance for the project and the whole uh, discourse around theatre music and uh, contemporary uh, developments in that. Maybe it's a slight detour from your, your, your general research interest in, in all things the musical, as it were, uh, although you have slipped in, uh, you know, uh, with the with the subtitle Macbeth to Matilda, you slipped in a musical at the end. Um, but perhaps tell us what was the initial impulse? What was the the, the the sort of the motivation to write this book, to embark on this journey? Because there was quite a quite a lengthy period of research attached to it. I'm I'm sure. Yes, this book this book took five years, um, and it was it was a couple of things. Um, one was. Um, an entirely pragmatic thing, which was because it was getting more and more difficult to fund trips to the to New York to do research in musical theatre. And so I was looking more at Britain anyway. So I was looking at British musicals and I was thinking about Les Mis and Matilda and thinking about the way they were produced and why they were produced in what was essentially a literary theatre. And I thought back to my PhD where I was looking at the way sound is used in all different kinds of performance. And so I, I sort of decided that I wanted to go back to that thinking about the use of sound in theatre beyond musicals, so including musicals but extending into music in theatre. And it was partly as a result of thinking, yes, pragmatically about what was manageable within a, a research framework, but it was also thinking about... We, about the extent of music in theatre, and we, we pigeonhole music in theatre into musicals, into opera, into theatre music, and it seemed to me that those were arbitrary separations. And so one of the things I, I wanted to do in the book was to explore the extent to which Les Miserables and Matilda came out of a working practice that was already musical. And at first, when I started thinking about the book, I was going to be looking at theatre music across the whole country and various different, you know. And what I discovered in the very early stages was not only that um, there were not many places that had the opportunity to have a lot of theatre music and, crucially, to archive it and document it so that a researcher can look at it, but also there wasn't the history of doing it. This was a company that had always, pretty much always, had music as part of its core practice. And it's interestingly that when the National Theatre started, which was some years after the RSC, the, the RSC began as the Shakespeare Company. It was incorporated as the RSC only in about 1960. The National Theatre started 
at least a decade later. And so what we'd got in the UK in these two major institutions was a practice where music was part of the institution. There wasn't a conception of that theatre world without music and without sound. Sound design gradually came in. Sound design wasn't even called sound design at the start of the RSC. So what I was trying to do was to explore. I was being entirely pragmatic, number one, in finding a company that I could research in depth that would be able to answer some questions I had about the place of music in theatre. It was too big to do the whole world, the whole of even the whole of Britain. It was about being pragmatic, but it was also therefore being able to drill down in depth into why that happened and the structures within which that could happen. Sorry, that was a very long answer. Oh, that, that, that's a w- wonderful answer because it, uh, it, I think it, it encompasses all the things that we researchers face, which is a, an inherent curios- curiosity about a particular subject, but then also a lot of very uh, real conditions and obstacles and, and pragmatic sort of contexts in which to do that. And I think what you've, what you've pointed out is, is an exception in the sense that you have a company that actually archives a lot of its sort of creative materials, all the paraphernalia, all the paratexts around uh, because it, around production because it's such a national institution and with many other I'm thinking of companies, you know such as Theatre Alibi or or uh, Nihai or, you know, other companies that have a strong connection to music and uh, seem to have music and musicianship at the heart of their creations but I'm I'm hesitant to, to, to or I'm, I'm, I'm unsure, but I, I doubt that they have the, the means and also the perhaps the uh, sort of the, the public interest in really taking all the time and money, let's face it, and, and, and men and woman power to archive all those kind of proceedings. So I think that's a really unusual, uh, unusually fortunate case, a treasure trove, one could say, for, for actually being able to find out beyond the anecdotal, beyond the the, um, the the people reminiscing about theatre music to actually find scripts and tapes and technologies yeah. and all sorts yeah. of things, which which you did and combined to a really dense, uh, thick description of what was going on on and is still going on there. Yeah, and I think I think I think it was imp- and is important because um, it's a big employer of musicians and the development of sound design was happening during that period. And the link between theatre and sound and the hierarchy between music and sound was also being experimented with at that time um, and and basically transforming. Um, Sound design didn't exist at the beginning and the fact that somebody was putting microphones on musicians was a horrifying thing Mm. in the the 1960s. And by, by the end of that period music and sound could all be incorporated within one person coming and creating a sound design. So, you know, I mean, it's a period that covers an immense change in the way we think about and use music. Can you say a bit about the profiles, particularly of perhaps composers? Um, what range of people? Are these people at the at the beginning of their careers, does this employment make their careers or vice versa? Are these people already established in the world of, of music and now the theatre sort of uh, tries to bring some of that fame into its, its productions or, or do we have a, a whole cross-section of, of 
compositional talents and languages and backgrounds that, that feature in these productions? Um, at the start, some quite established composers were being drawn in. Guy Wolfenden, who um, really was the sort of inaugurator of the um, music department, he was there for about 40 years and became very well known. But he was not long out of university at the time that he began working there. But, for example, he employed Delia Derbyshire, who, uh, for people who don't know, she was a, a key figure in the radiophonic workshop in the UK. And so he was bringing in people who were quite experimental, who he found out about, and involving them in creating music for the RSC. But in those early days, it was really very basic in terms of what the music was doing. And, you know, for a Shakespeare performance in the 1960s, you would expect music only at the places where Shakespeare had said, there is music here, or thunder crash, and so on. You know, you would be sticking much more to the text. And gradually that changed. And um, that's the interesting story, I think, is, is what changed and how it changed. But to come back to the question, at that point... Um, he was bringing in people who perhaps were quite experimental. But in recent years, of course, as, as sound designers changed, as, as music's changed, different composers have been used and pop music composers have been brought in. There's, there's a, a production that used Duke Ellington music, for example. I mean, that's hardly pop music. But of, of an earlier time, period, yes. yeah, yeah, it, you know, that brought it in. Um, but now... Pop musicians are being asked to write scores. And so the role of the music director of the show, who is there to manage the musicians, has changed. And they sometimes become or, or, arrangers or orchestrators, um, if, depending on what kind of composer you're using. Is this a composer who's used to scoring things for musicians, or is this a composer who is used to working with a group of musicians and creating sounds in collaboration. So all those things have changed because the working practices of musicians have changed. Um, when Guy Wolfenden started, you scored your music. You wrote it down and musicians played from a score, a written score. Yeah. Um, and gradually that has shifted with electronic music, with technology, with so many things. Two of your chapters have the word collaboration in them. So the first is called Musical Collaborations at the RSC, and the next one is called Collaborative Composition at the RSC, which to you know, a classical musician or, or musicologist is, is already a, a sort of a little provocation because one thinks of composition very much still in, in, in the sense of the, the genius lone composer at their desk and so forth. So the, the, the whole uh, you know, mystification or, or, or uh, what's the word? Uh, uh, yeah, enshrinement of, the, of, of that idea of the, of the soul genius. And, and here already you, you kind of hint at that this is clearly a different kind of practice. Can you say a bit about what, how, how does collaboration manifest itself? What does it consist of? And how, how did it perhaps also change? Because you, you're, you're mapping quite a bit of history in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the history of the RSC. I think uh, it, it is the same story, that what you start with is um, a composer who sits down with the director, so it's already collaborative, mm -hmm. and they discuss the concept, and clearly the director's also discussing that with the designer, and, and they're working out what, the, what this production is going to say about the, the themes 
of the particular play that's been chosen. And of course they don't only do Shakespeare plays at the RSC. I have chosen to focus mostly on Shakespeare plays um, just to narrow the, the framework, but they were always producing other um, shows as well, at first of the period and then later, of wider periods. But collaboration begins with that initial conversation and the composer then uh, creating some ideas, exploring them with the director, perhaps being in rehearsal, working with actors on song, working with musicians on the sounds. And that's in a, in a very... That's almost like the basis where you're writing a score. You then work with your sound designer who is going to create the sound world in the theatre space. So um, already you've got a big body of collaborators. But also you have the times when you have those composers who come in with an idea that they then work on with musicians because, of course, one of the unique features of the RIC was they had a band who were available. They were on long-term contracts. Some of them were on long-term contracts. Some of them were just employed year to year to year. But they tended to stay for many years. And that was partly to do with the geography of where the RIC at Stratford was placed, was located. So there were lots of reasons for it, but it meant that you had a group of musicians who got used to working in theatre, who got used to working with certain composers, and the composers knew who they were writing for. And so you have a different kind of collaboration there um, in musical terms than you would normally have in most theatre music situations. And so I think that particular part of it is probably unique to the RSC. Might be, you know, places like Theatre Alibi might have a similar situation because they will tend to work with the same group of actors and, and often actor musicians. And so they have that same sense that they can be writing for a particular performer and know what they do well, but also writing shorthand for them, you know, encouraging them to be part of the creative team. And then, once you get into performance, what can possibly be more collaborative? You have actors speaking, and one of the things about um, theatre music is that it's not played in isolation, there are constant cue moments where you're going into and out of speech and the speech might be delayed, the actor might perform it very slightly differently that night. So yes, you're working with cue points, but you're also working with the way you write music, which contains uh, pauses, obviously, but round and rounds, little bars that allow music to just hold up and wait while the actor gets there. Um, there's all sorts of devices that, that theatre musicians know. And it means that the theatre musician actually playing the show and the group of musicians playing the show, they actually collaborate all the time with the actors on making sure that they are working together through the performance and there wasn't always even a conductor working with them. In fact, there very often um, wasn't in the smaller theatre. In the larger theatre, they would have effectively a leader, a musical director, who was sort of uh, looking after that link with the stage. But in the smaller theatre, the actors just, the, the musicians were used to taking cues 
and working with the actors and knowing the timings and adapting as required. So there's lots of levels of collaboration. There's, there's at the compositional level, at the conceptual level, but there's also at the performative level. I think what you're saying also extends, as you've mentioned, the moment of performance to the collaboration with the audience. So to what extent does the, it sounds like a multimedial narration, you know, some things are told through speech, through actors, through embodiment, through gesture, other things are told through sound and music, other things through light and costume and, 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 and prop. And perhaps rather than being a case of just of, let's just say, the, the design element simply amplifying or supporting what's already there. So you could tell the story with just the actors and then there's a bit, bit of sort of sound and a bit of costume to make it look nice. It sounds like it's a more integral, uh, the music has a more integral function in that and that, that, and that the audience has to sort of um, buy into this collaboration of the different senses of the different uh, um, ways of making meaning to understand the story in full. Is that, can you think of examples where that happened and perhaps others where that didn't happen or is it too complicated a question? Um, well, the, the very earliest ones and probably mostly the, um, the more military plays will tend to have things like the drummer and the bugler and, and in those I wouldn't say the musical is integral yeah. um, in that sense. It's an important aspect but it's much more part of the story. Whereas, for example, there was a, sometime in the 1990s a really interesting production of uh, the Scottish play Macbeth. It was created by two musicians working together, and it wasn't ever scored. It was written as cues into a script. And I mention it in the book because that graphic, that the, the different ways of writing scores transformed to allow more collaboration. But also, what that did at that time was it allowed um, the creation of a much more impressionistic sound world. So whereas the early stages were about those military events and bugles and drums and so on, um, what you moved to, not just uh, in all the plays, I mean, the magical ones, of course, you were always going to get something more atmospheric, but even in what were military plays, you can start to see a shift towards a much more atmospheric and conceptual relationship between the music and the story. There is a production with a score that contains three cellos, three cellists playing throughout, and it's, it's a, a neotonal, minimalistic style of music. And what it does is it creates a very other kind of sound world that avoids quite deliberately that sense of this is militaristic, this is, you know, jingoistic almost. Mm -hmm. And it moves in a totally other direction that allows audiences to, to feel that, uh, that their world is disjointed somehow. Um, and the Macbeth production I was talking about a minute ago, that one has a very different effect Because in that, although the sound world is um, slightly alien in the sense that it's uh, more percussive, it's, uh, it, but it uses um, non-Western percussion instruments, what it does is it creates uh, almost like an ethereal quality of the magic that was around the witches and the tension 
and atmosphere surrounding Macbeth and the castle and what he's attempting to do. So what's happening is, is the movement from music as functional to music as atmospheric and conceptual, which therefore um, encourages audiences into, um, I suppose, in one sense, an, an easy acceptance of the world, but it does guide and shape a response to the piece um, in a way that, that changed over that time period. So rather than simply being a functional aspect of the production of a piece of theatre, it became a conceptual part of the di director's thinking. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. One other chapter in your book is called Electronic Sound and Fury, and I was going to ask you about that because, of course, the if you trace theatre music and its history, uh, even in a recent history, you will inevitably talk about technology because it's just a, a factor. And I know that your interest in technology has, has continued from, from, uh, from there on. Um, what were perhaps some of the more surprising or, or you know, what were the things that caught your, your eye, I was going to say, but it's more caught your ear and, and, and your imagination about what, what happened, uh, what were the steps. Um, I, I'm asking because there was a, a chapter in a book that I co-edited with Lynn, uh, Lynn Kendrick some 10, 11 years ago, um, uh, which uh, and <laughs> I've also got name problems today. I will tell you the author in a minute, but it was about theatre's historic resistance to amplification. So it put all the lights in, but it was very late in adopting uh, um, sort of sound technologies. Um, so that's that's interesting, and I was wondering what you encountered at the RSC in that respect. Well, uh, I discovered there is a thing called a panotrope, which of course is not my discovery at all. Um, I don't know what uh, that it's, is. It's been, it's been around since the 1930s, and it's effectively like a double record player so that you could um, have... Because in the early days, of course, they recording of music was on what was effectively a record, an early record. Yeah. But you needed to be able to move from one sound to another, either immediately or crossfade or whatever. And so you had what was effectively a pair of decks in a panotrope. And the panotrope was this big, like a coffin-sized um, device, mechanical device, um, that allowed you, your sound person, who at that point was just an ASM, to uh, move the sound from one cue to another. And of course, that was following all the early technologies, the technologies like thunderboards and, and um, you know, the, the, the sort Rain of makers, the physical yeah. noisemakers of, of the past. So this, you, ha you have this panotrope. And of course, then you had the early um, reel-to-reel -reel tape recorders, and that was a big step forward. And only gradually were they incorporated into theatres, and, and that was, again, a financial decision. Um, but, of course, both the panotrope and the, and the reel-to-reel tape recorder, as they developed, one of the big issues was that you had to record them in advance. Yeah. And one of the things about theatre music is that it transforms from night to night. And so your live musicians are able to adapt, as I've, I've already been talking about. Of course, these technologies meant that it had to be fixed. And so... What you got was a, a, a system where you might be um, developing music, but it couldn't be recorded until the very last minute, even after the tech, because 
until you had done your technical rehearsal, you didn't know how long a scene change was going to take. And so you didn't know how long that music cue needed to be. So you couldn't finalise any kind of recording. So all that technology was was being developed. And gradually, obviously, you know, computers came in, different kinds of computer technology. Um, and, of course, beyond the pale, as far as musicians were concerned, were click tracks mm. that finally came in. Yeah, not very popular amongst not musicians. Not very popular yeah. among musicians at all. Um, click tracks have the capacity to add lots of different sound effects and layers of sound to a score but they have to be played from beginning to to end they have that same um problem that they're structured they are of a certain length and somebody has to press a button to start them and then you have to play at exactly the time the correct time signature the tempo until the end and then it stops and of course they used a lot in, in musical theatre as well. And I guess they started coming in in about the 80s, and I, I have dates in the book, but um, of when they came in in different parts of theatre. So all this technology always has problems because musicians are resistant to those sorts of technologies, not for any bad reasons, but they are used to working together. They're used to collaborating. They're used to listening and adapting. That's what musicians do whenever they play together. You know, the band in the local pub, the joy of playing together is playing together. Mm. And you breathe together and you, um, you make music together. And that does things to your brain that are positive. And of course, you take that away. You give a musician a pair of headphones and say, play along with this click they find it very functional and industrial. Mm. And so the sound and fury um, comes with the, the gradual introduction of various technologies. But of course, from the sound designer and, and, music, and composer's perspective, what they do is add quality. They mean that you can create more, you can create more interesting sounds when synthesizers and then... Um, What's the one? Sample. Samplers. Samplers yeah. came in. Um, uh, when, they, when each of those technologies gradually came in, what they do is increase the potential for sound world, but also for that sound quality to be reproduced from night to night. And as computers came in, um, where you'd had a huge sound desk that needed to be programmed with exact... EQ on every instrument and every sound effect that had to be programmed night to night as you move between different shows there's always the problem of mistakes happening by the time you computerize it and you can just press the button and it resets to the start yeah. your quality can be ensured in a different way but of course it does take away from some of the liveness mm -hmm. and I think that's always a bit of a battle this may be too specialist a question, but I, I was wondering as you, was, as you were talking, from what I gather, the, the predominant um, music sort of software to use for in theatres in the UK is QLab, whereas in Germany, everyone uses Ableton. And Ableton is called Ableton Live. And I don't think that's by mistake. It's actually a DJ software to begin with. It plays a lot with loops. It plays a lot with 
precisely what you talked about, sort of the ability to layer things, but to actually remain flexible of if you've got, say, you've got a, a string ostinato, and then you've got another instrument, and then you've got three sound effects. You can keep them all hovering, as it were, and you fire them whenever you need it, and so the track can be different every time. Whereas QLab, um, you're also quite flexible, you can, but it is more a linear program. It is more designed. You can program all the things you've talked about, so it do, does help enormously in in fading in one thing and bringing in the video and taking the lights down and putting the EQ to something else or whatever. It's wonderful, but it does tend to sort of anticipate a a repeatable linear run of things. Is is that just how it happened? Do you think there are different theatre aesthetics behind that, or 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 have you encountered Ableton as well? Or I've, I've actually encountered Ableton, and uh, I know less about QLab. In fact, um, it seems to me that you've got the same issue with the technology. That what happens is the technology almost dictates certain aspects of the performance. So, for example, if if what you're doing is a loop type of performance that's the kind of music you get that's the kind of of sound world you're in Um, it seems to me that almost what's happened is that you get sound worlds because of the technology now Um, and so those looping sound worlds have become more and more prevalent because they're very easy to produce in certain ways on the technology but then that's almost becoming too easy Mm. and so it's like when we have started using computers to do our word processing, we don't think in complete sentences because we can fi- finish them on the page. And I think the same has happened in terms of composition. There is a danger that what you end up with is looping compositions that don't have a conceptual oversight. Now, whether that applies in theatre or not, I don't know. Hmm. But that would be my concern with the way composition has gone. But equally, the advantage is... What you've got is the quality, you've got the diversity of sound worlds. It's not just those few instruments, those orchestral instruments we have. We now have a, an immense spread of sound worlds that have, are available, pitched and unpitched. But it's interesting what you say. It, it kind of echoes very strongly a conversation I had with Paul Clark uh, for the, the theatre music book I did in, in, in Germany, um, although that conversation remains in English, so people can read it if they want to. And he says very similar things in the sense that he's quite allergic to compositional la- laziness because it's so easy to, cl- to create something that sounds quite impressive to begin with, but is really you know, c- connecting a number of presets and of, of prefabricated uh, loops. And it, it just, some in, in some people, it inspires uh, shortcuts and sort of uh, inspires a, a laziness around it. And uh, he gets very upset about that. Also, in terms of sounds, as he's saying, when he when he listens and he hears the Viennese string orchestra or what it is called, you know, a particular software that emulates or you know provides certain samples, he already goes, "Oh, here we go again!" Simply because it's it sounds already slightly prefabricated. I, I was going to say uh, the the article I mentioned earlier is by Jean Marc Leroux, so and it's called "Sound Reproduction Techniques in Theatre: A Case of Mediatic Resistance." So it's precisely uh, talking about the history of theatre being quite hesitant in taking up. Um, sound reproduction techniques which which is interesting but perhaps a conversation for another time I was going to ask you I think we, we were um, we were sort of working our way through the book and the, the, the final chapter before the epilogue is called um, From Macbeth to Matilda and 
obviously that has a nice alliteration to it, but it's also to me a, a little uh, fun provocation, of course, because it takes you know one of the eminent uh, plays of Shakespeare to, God forbid, a musical. And um, I wonder if if there is something there that kind of says or that points at the genre fluidity and the the fact that theatre music is so much um i think you mentioned it at the beginning of our talk is 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 present in all kinds of different genres um and 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 kind of also is is one of the factors that makes different genres almost indistinguishable you know we have certainly had um uh, shakespeare productions that are almost like a musical already you know there's lots of songs in there and so forth i mean was it just a fun way of connecting those extremes or not extremes but those poles on the on the on the scale or not not specifically i mean partly it was um but there there is this body of material that the rsc creates which um includes christmas shows mm. um it includes uh plays obviously with songs and borders on that musical theatre area. But as well, you have them dipping their toe into the water of absolute musicals, like through composed Les Miserables. They had done musicals before, but Les Mis was through composed. That is a big step. But when you look at the practice that was leading up to that and the amount of music that was happening... It doesn't suddenly it doesn't seem so extraordinary, and the way back since the start of the RSC, there was an investment in training of, of performers and particularly voice training, and of course that's voice training for speech initially, and and that has continued. But you only need to extend that idea of of speech training a small step, and you're into thinking about voice and thinking about voice and song. So to me, it didn't seem like an extraordinary step. Clearly, it was a a, a moment of transition. You know, there was almost, a, a, in the early days, there was almost a, a sort of an, an anti-expert sense in terms of, of voices. Um, you wanted the voice to sound amateur for, a, for the character, because otherwise the character would sound too good singing. Mm. And that was a sort of almost like a, a very strange kind of um, rejection of professionalism in singing. Um, but at the same time, some of the composers would bring in performers who could sing, and they would have them in certain roles, and they were clearly they were perfectly adequate, as, more than adequate as actors. Um, but they also had the capacity to sing and sing effectively. But at the same time, you had Trevor Nunn running the the company. And Trevor Nunn was working across different types of theatre. And his production of Nicholas Nickleby and the team that he had to produce that show and the design aesthetic where um, there was an incredible fluidity between scenes, you can absolutely see that going straight through into Les Miserables. Um, And he always talked about the fact that there shouldn't be a hierarchy in theatre forms. So having somebody as um, open-minded and Catholic in his um, approach to diverse theatre forms 
at the head of the RSC, I think, was really important in, in that development. And of course, once you've done Les Miserables, people are looking for the next now. It was, what, 20 years later before Matilda appeared. They did do quite a number of experiments that were far less successful in the intervening years. And they also did regular Christmas shows and so on. Matilda was a huge investment. And again, it was, it was as a result of a new director coming in, um, a new musical director and they worked together on creating the workshop capacity through which Matilda was created and that arose because of course they knew that Les Miserables all those years earlier had taken a 10-week rehearsal period because it was being developed through rehearsal through workshops um, and it required that to get the interaction of sound and, and theatre and music all working together. And so the same thing happened for Matilda. So they were prepared to make the investment, and I think that was the key. They were prepared to allow the people they'd appointed to take the time it took until the musical was ready. There wasn't the deadline. There wasn't the sense of a commercial imperative. This has got to be created in four weeks because that's all the money we have and we've got to make a fortune out of it. Um, and they get the bonus after the event because, of course, the bonus then comes back as that show spreads around the world. But I find it really interesting how some of those really successful musicals that, that really work on an integrated level in the sense that they... They're not just spectacle, they're not just music, they really have very highly developed theatrical techniques of storytelling integrated or interwoven with music, with spectacle, etc. Uh, that, that comes out of a tradition of doing you know, literary theatre and vice versa, that, that also some, the, the, some of the Shakespeare productions probably heavily, were heavily influenced or, or benefited from some of the experiences about the affect or the, how can I put it, the, uh, the overwhelming sort of uplifting spirit of a musical, etc., so that they brought that into to Shakespeare or other, other, um, other plays and other, other stories and, and that there was a porosity between the two genres, if you want to call it that, but, but as you've demonstrated, it's, it's, a, it's a very uh, fluid kind of uh, transition between different yeah. kind of, which at the heart, they're all theatre with music and exactly, that's, that's what it exactly. is. Exactly, exactly. And actually, um, a lot of the musicians from the RSC band were playing in, in Les Mis, but the actors weren't. Yeah, so that's there, there was a, again, mm. you, know, you, you have these different hierarchies, um, and you know the the literary world was aghast when the RSC produced Les Mis, and I think two of the performers, I, that's the number that's in my head, um, from the RSC company were in Les Misérables. Were in the show. The rest were brought in because they needed that sort of expertise in singing well and being able to perform through song rather than being able to simply perform a song. Absolutely. In terms of doing the research, I, I'm borrowing this question, I think, from, from Dushka Radosavljevic's uh, conversations that she's recorded on, uh, on, on uh, research projects, etc. There, was there a particular difficult chapter for you to write? Was there a favourite chapter with some things easier? And, and do you have an expression? If so, why? Just because I always find it interesting also how, how we do research, how well and easy we write things and how sometimes we struggle. Or... I found it extraordinarily hard to write this book. Yeah. Um, I 
didn't know. I, I really struggled with how to structure it mm-hmm. because there was so much to say and so many competing, not agendas, but competing stories. Um, the story of the musicians who are never talked about, who are in the dark, you know, they're hidden away. They never, well, in the RSC they do appear, but then their story of of moving between being backstage musicians and performing on stage and being costumed, you know, that's a, a story. Mm-hmm. Um, there's the story of the development of technologies. There's the story of sound design appearing through this this journey. There's the story of that interaction between musical theatre and theatre music. And then there's the, just the amount of facts, most of which I've forgotten today when we're talking about it. The amount of facts that you gather when you're doing this kind of thing, and they're all written down in files and, and need to be remembered, and the, the stories and the um, journeys and the facts all need to be brought into an interaction, ultimately to make a point and working out what you're trying to say when you've got this enormous body of material is so difficult mm-hmm. um, and so you know it almost becomes arbitrary right well this one's going to be about this bit of the story and this one's going to be about and, and do these all come together in the end how can those all come together and particularly as this was both history and analysis and uh, it was also trying to say something about the functions of theatre music. So it, I found it extraordinarily difficult to write, and it took, you know, as I say, it took five years of work to um, to pull it together. Well, it, it is as this, uh, as they say about comedy. You know, um, it's it's enormous hard work as, to, to make it look easy and, and entertaining. And I wouldn't have guessed that this was such a hard book to write. Not because it's it doesn't read. Uh, I know all the things you've just said. It's, it's it combines so many perspectives, uh, so much material, uh, and it goes into so much different kinds of detail. But uh, I think you've managed to to draw it all into into a really compelling and very actually very easy to read easier in the sense that yeah it, it really tries to sort of communicate with the reader and i think uh, you've, you've managed that fantastically Thank well you. and it's a it's a really uh, highly recommended for anyone who's interested even vaguely in any any uh, aspect of theater music and of course in the rsc and and in that kind of history because it really combines so much uh, relevant and, and interesting material Thank you so much, Billy, for, for telling us about your, your wonderful book. And, um, uh, and I hope uh, you, oh, you have already written the next book, so we'll speak about that another time. And, uh, and I hope you'll, you have but, got but many more books the, there. The, the continuation of that book is the, is the chapter I'm writing at the moment. Fantastic. So I'm, I'm particularly looking forward to that, which will appear in a book to be edited very soon uh, in the process of this project. Thank you so much again.